The Emptiness Experiment, Part 4, Long-Term Living in a Short-Term World. Long-Term Living in a Short-Term World. So I made a big deal about this uh, first service last week that I had had a rough sickness. Just, I'm getting over it. I'm finally, I think I'm over it. Uh, Two Thursdays ago, I was telling the the crowd, I, I told last week's first service crowd that Thursday night that week thought I wasn't going to get through the message. So I always, like, I came out and bragged. I said, oh, I, I've been preaching 20 years. I've never not finished a message. Well, this past Thursday, I almost didn't finish the message. <laughs> I was, like, had this little tickle, and it was co- causing me to cough and everything and couldn't get anything out. So this guy walked up during the message, walked up, gave me a lozenge in the middle of the message. The lozenge, lo- the lozenge saved the message. That's called partnership in the gospel right there. Give you a cough drop in Jesus' name. You'll surely not lose your reward. Come on, somebody. But today I came prepared with my own, so we're all good. Plus, I got one in here, and uh, we're all set. Ricola! Hallelujah. All right. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we are. Going through the book of Ecclesiastes, I think a book that is right on time for where we are as a generation where we are as a world, because we're talking about and hearing from a guy who had it all, who had the life that, that we actually kind of live as Americans today. Um, only he had our kind of life 2,800 years ago. That's a miracle. I mean, he had knowledge at his fingertips. He was the smartest, wisest man that ever lived. He could uh, enjoy any kind of intoxicating pleasure at any moment And on top of that, he built great structures and impressed nations around the world. His name was Solomon. He was the son of David, the wisest, richest king, most powerful man on the planet 2,800 years ago. At the end of his life, he writes this book, Ecclesiastes. The theme is life without God is empty. But he starts it off by saying meaningless. That's the first word in the book. Meaningless. Life apart from God is meaningless. And so I just have this thought, and I want you to write it down. If life with God is meaningless, it stands to reason that life with God is meaning what? Full. You could probably could have filled that in before I even said it. But life without God is meaningless. Life with God is meaningful. But why? Why is life with God meaningful? Well, the second half of Ecclesiastes is going to tell us why. See, Ecclesiastes is 12 chapters, and it divides neatly in half, two halves. The first half is Ecclesiastes 1 to 6. And I call that the been there, done that half. Like, I chased pleasure, I chased romance, I chased stuff, I chased things, I chased money. Been there, done that. Ecclesiastes 7 to 12, the second half, is what I call the now what half. Been there, done that, now what? In other words, he's saying, take it from me. I've chased it all and I found that life without God is meaningless. Now life with God is meaningful. So chapter 7 is really a turning point in the book. And the first thing he's going to teach us in this book is what I call the primary benefit of life with God, according to Solomon here, is life with God brings us the wisdom of God. See, this is what you get when you do life with God. Wisdom. Wisdom is what you need to live a meaningful life. A life that when you will look back on your life, at the end of your life, you'll say, okay, good, I did meaningful things. How did I make those decisions? How did I live life the way it should be lived? Wisdom. He says in verse 11 of this chapter, wisdom is, a good, wisdom is good with an inheritance. How many know you can have an inheritance, but, but without wisdom, not good? He says you need wisdom with that inheritance. And it's an advantage to those who live under the sun or see the sun. In other words, anyone with wisdom will be better for it. So you could could be poor and wisdom will help you. You could be rich and wisdom will help you. Because life is not really about what you have. It's about what you do with what you have. Life is not really about what you know. It's about what you do with what you know. Life is not really about where you're from. It's about what you do from here forward. Knowledge is good, but wisdom is better. Now, I'll tell you that we have this mantra in our age, knowledge is power. That's not true. 
Because knowledge can be used for good or for evil. Think about this, that we live in a tremendously knowledgeable age. We know more about stuff than ever before. And you could take knowledge and learn nuclear power knowledge. Through nuclear power knowledge, you can light up a city. You can, you can power a city, which is good. And yet, through nuclear power knowledge, you can destroy a city. Knowledge is amoral. Wisdom helps us understand what to do with what we know. Now you have to understand that all wisdom comes from God. Wisdom comes from God. The Bible says in Colossians 2-3, in him, in Christ, lie hidden all. Somebody say all. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's Colossians 2-3. It's on your notes there. Christ is the source of wisdom. And if you want to do life well, do life with wisdom. So let's stand together. We're going to read the first few verses of Ecclesiastes 7. And then we'll get into it, unpack it. Verse 1. A good name is more or is precious, is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, he's going to challenge a lot of our assumptions through this text. Just listen to all the assumptions that he challenges us on. Verse 2, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of the fools. This is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. And then he says this. Say not why were the days, former days, better than these. It's not wisdom that you ask that. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is the wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this moment. These are your people. I'm your, I'm your servant. Forgive your servant his sins. There are many. Help us to hear your voice. Help us to receive your word and help us to see Jesus. In his mighty name we pray and everybody said, amen. amen. God bless you. Have a seat. Three big points about wisdom and then we'll get to the main points of the message. So this is like two sermons in one. How lucky are you? Number one point about wisdom is wisdom separates God's best from what seems good. Did you notice how many times Solomon in this passage said better, better, better? And what he was often saying was what you think is good, there's actually something better than that. And so you have to understand that wisdom helps us discern God's best from what seems good to us in the moment. Wisdom says, Lord, I think this way, but what do you say? There's a, there's, a, there's a verse of scripture that kind of shocks me, kind of frightens me. It's actually, it appears, the same phrase appears twice in the book of Proverbs. And the phrase goes like this. There is a way that seems right to a man. But the end is destruction. There is oftentimes in our lives, and I know in my life, where I thought, oh, that seems good or feels good. Or looks good, but it's actually destructive. You've been there. I'm sure we can have people come up here and tell their stories about the things that at the moment you thought were one thing, but it turned out to be a disastrous thing. 
Well, wisdom helps you understand what seems good but is a lie and what is God's best for your life. And I don't know about you, but I want to do life with God's best. Number two, wisdom prepares us to choose the hard road over the easy escape. <clears throat> a lot of the things that Solomon is going to address as not better in this passage are the easy escapes, the laughter of fools, the house of feasting, the places where we party. And, and listen, we are in the escape it generation where uh, we, we look to escape. Uh, people say like this, I'm just working for the weekend. I just want to get away from it all. I just want to get out of my problems. And this is where addiction and this is where bondage comes from because what you think is an escape actually becomes a trap in your life. So be careful about what you turn to, if it's not God, when things are turned against you. Be careful of what you're looking to to bring your heart reprieve when sometimes you need to stand strong in the midst of difficulty and turn your eyes on Christ instead of the outlets that the devil will come and offer you very quickly. And so wisdom prepares you to take the hard road. Here's how it works. You choose hard now and you get easy later. The problem is our entire world programs us to choose easy now without thinking about the hard later. Even our diets, we choose the easy now, the fast, the quick, the fatty, the gross, the fried now. And then we're fat later. And, and so here's the thing. You've got to understand that the entire culture around you in many respects um, almost, almost cajoles you into choosing things that will harm you over the long term uh, but will feel good in the immediate. And, and wisdom says, wait, just because it feels good now doesn't mean it's going to be good later. How do I understand the difference? Wisdom. Third, wisdom grounds us in reality instead of fantasy. I love what I'm going to see and what we're going to see for the rest of Ecclesiastes over these next four weeks, including this one. Because what, what Solomon's going to walk us through is the hard realities of the world. Next week, injustice. And if I have to say thank you to Solomon for this book about something, it is this. Thank you, Solomon, for not giving us pie-in-the-sky Christianity. How many know what I'm talking about? Have you ever met a Christian who is so spiritually minded they are of no earthly good? There are these people that live in the clouds. They're mentally in the clouds, emotionally in the clouds, always jumping from emotional experience to emotional experience and thinking about just heaven and getting out of here and it doesn't matter about anything that's on this earth because I'm going to heaven someday, so who cares about what happens here? And they're just so high in the sky that they have no benefit to those they are living around. I call them detached from reality Christians. Do you know someone like this? If you don't know someone like this, you are that person. So listen up. <laughs> We're all kind of ticked at you. Listen. The real world is hard. The world that we live in is challenging. We have to have real eyes for a real world and face hard issues with God's wisdom. So this is what he says in chapter 7. He starts it off by saying a good name. Because here's what he's going to say first. You've got to establish your identity. You've got to establish your identity in the wisdom of God over the long term. Why do I say this chapter is about identity? Because it starts off with talking about identity. A good name. Somebody say name. name. A good name. When the Bible talks about names, it's talking about character. Who you really are. See, in our day and age, we give people names because of some name that we like. But think about it. You probably, if you have children, you probably named your children, think about this, based on someone's character whom you liked. Didn't you? Did you have this conversation with your spouse when you had the baby? And they were like, I want to name him Peter. And you're like, no, I knew a Peter in high school. He was a dirtbag. I'm not naming my kid Peter. The name, the character associated with the name, it, it, it resonates with you for a long time. How many know what I'm talking about? 
So he says, listen, your identity and your, your, who you are, you got to think about this and listen in. Listen in, young people. You got to think about who you are over the long term. Who you're becoming over the long term. In an age that increasingly demands you to make a name for yourself in the immediate and in the short term. This is poison for your souls. Now, we are the immediate generation, and it's just infiltrating into our character development, unfortunately. We are the immediate generation. I mean, things happen so quickly today. We can get information so quickly today. I remember, and this, even this statement is going to sound funny. I remember that when I needed to know something, the good old days when we used to have to actually go to a computer and type in something with our fingers. How many remember those days? Remember those days? Now you can just say, Alexa, speak to a box. Okay, Google. Hey, Siri. I'm setting off all the home devices right now on our online watchers. That's because you should be here, not there. God bless you. My son today, he wants to ride his rollerblades, and so he's wondering about the rain. And so he's just at the counter all morning saying, Alexa, when's the rain going to stop? Talking to a box, seven years old, talking to a box. I'm like, hey, I remember the old days when we had to type in weather.com. Oh, the agony. Our fingers were so sore back in those days. Remember, how, how, how many remember when you used to actually have to go to the newspaper? Oh, Lord, look at all the work I have to do. I have to, I have to pick up this featherlight piece of paper and turn it over. Oh, the effort. How many, a little bit more on the nose, how many remember the old days when we used to have to roll down the window? Yeah, now you know what I'm talking about. We had biceps like Arnold Schwarzenegger, man. That's why this culture is so weak, because all we got to do is go. We don't have to hold the button anymore. We're just going to, pretty soon it's going to be like, Alexa, put the window down. That's where we're getting to, really. This is the immediate generation. Uh, how many remember when you used to roll down the window and ask some stranger for directions? How many remember those nightmares? Because you never knew what you were going to get. Were you going to get an honest person, or were you going to get somebody who wanted to mess with you? You'd end up in, 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 in Australia, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> And so we are in the immediate generation where, and, 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 and with social media and, and the tweeter, the tweet generation and the Insta generation, I mean, it's even in the name, Instagram. It's in the name. It's all about now. Well, let me tell you something. Um, immediacy works for getting directions and for finding out the weather. And, and, and for things like that. But immediacy is poison for character development. Immediacy works for what you need to know, but not for who you're becoming. So I want to give you an example. The immediate character, the, the, the poison of immediacy concerning character. In 1997, he was nine years old, and he, so, and he made a record, and he sold one million copies at nine. Three years later, at 12, in 2000, he made another record, and he sold three million copies. He was on TV all over the place, beloved by those older and younger than he in 2003, he filed for legal emancipation from his mother at the age of 15. In 2006, he was engaged to a Playboy model, and that engagement lasted exactly one week. In 2008, he was arrested for marijuana possession. In 2013, he filed bankruptcy to shed $3.5 million in debt. In 2017, he was arrested for DUI, and was shrunk down to a malnourished, emaciated, really, weight of 115 pounds, being on a dangerous combination of prescription medications. Who was he? He was Aaron Carter. You remember that kid? What a cute kid. And uh, went skyrocketed to fame at age nine. Immediacy. 
And now this is him today. A shell of his former self. At the time, young people, listen, if Instagram had been around back then, he would have had 1.5 billion followers. And who knows how many likes and loves. And, and, and oh, Aaron, you're awesome. Oh, Aaron, celebrate you. Oh, Aaron. Emoticon, hands raised. Emoticon, hands raised. Emoticon, hands raised. <laughs> but today, emoticon, thumbs down. Living for the emoticon. Wait a second. You've got to watch out for immediacy when it comes to who you're becoming. And I'm asking you to lean in today because we got to learn how to live long-term in a short-term generation. Long-term. In other words, who you are today doesn't really matter much. God is looking at your life long-term. He's not really worried about the problems and difficulties that you're going through now because he knows he's got a plan for you. He's got a purpose to that problem. He's got a test testimony for that test that you're going through. He's going to make a message out of your mess. So don't worry about what's happening right now. Look long-term over the course of your life and watch God build something beautiful out of your mess. You've got to learn how to do it. And I hope that this sets you free from the bondage of trying to always put on this momentary reputation that is fabricated and photoshopped for the sake of long-term character development. That's what Ecclesiastes 7 is about. Are you interested? I hope, you've, I hope I've whet your appetite for what he has to say. So five things, and then we're done. Number one, long-term living. Number one, seeks to make investments, not impressions. Again, the impression generation. Here's who I am, here's what I'm doing, here's why my life is better than yours right now. Snap, post, like, like, hashtag, hashtag, whatever. Impression generation. What about the investments that you're making in your life? So I love what he says, because he says in verse one, a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment is just perfume or cologne. Now, it takes seconds to put cologne on. I know this because I sprayed myself right before I got up here. What was that, like a half a second? And right now, I smell heavenly. <laughs> but in a few moments, I'm going to go back to smelling like feet again. You know, a couple hours from now. Cologne. It's like this, it's like this illustration for it's easy to spray it up and make yourself look good for the right, for the right now instant moment. But there's something more important, and that is your character, a good name. And so he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. That doesn't sound right to me. I know. Wait, let him le lean in here and let him challenge your assumptions. Because wisdom helps us learn to discern what is God's best from what seems good. The day of death. Now, he's not saying that death is better than uh, life. No, he's saying the day of death in your perception, in your mind, the aim of your life. In other words, you got to think about the end of your life a lot more than you currently do. Isn't it amazing how we are the generation of born this way? In other words, I am forever locked into this identity that I was born with forever, period, full stop. Wait, you're a prisoner? You're telling me you're a prisoner to what happened to you biologically at birth? That's slavery. You're just caging yourself in there. I am not interested in who I was born. I'm interested in whom I'm becoming. I, and let me just tell you something. I was born a mess. This is why when you were born, physically you were a mess. You know those images on Hallmark cards of babies when they're first born? Not, not real. That baby has been washed, powdered, and put makeup on by an artist. When babies come out, they're nasty. That's a, it's a physical illustration of your spiritual reality. You were born a mess. You were born with issues, selfishness, 
greed, the seeds of, of selfishness were resident in you from the day you were born. Your mama never needed to teach you how to take stuff from other people. No one had to instruct you how to say, mine. No, we have to teach you how to share. This is why parents don't have any hair, because they're pulling their hair out trying to get the kids to share. And so you've got to realize that how you begin does not matter. It's how you end. And then he says, go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting. Here's what he's saying. Translation, you need to get yourself to a good funeral once in a while. Why? I don't like funerals. Because they wake you up to the reality. Someday you're going to be in that box. Someday everybody's going to be crying over you. What are they going to be? Are they going to be crying or are they going to be thankful? Think about it. I'm glad he's gone. That Peter, he was a real dirtbag. <laughs> or are they gonna be crying? Like, what are you living for? This is good news for anybody who is, who is not proud of where you came from. Good news for anybody who wasn't raised in the church and feels like, well, I guess I'm not a real good person because I, I came from a bad background. My parents divorced at a young age. I was raised on food stamps. I didn't have the life that you had. I guess God can't do anything with me. Nonsense. It's never about what you started as. It's all about what you finish as. And God can take the worst of sinners and turn them into a mighty man or a mighty woman to be used for his glorious purposes in an instant. This is the beauty of our faith. It is the resurrection faith that takes what is dead and makes it alive. And so you don't worry about how you start. Don't worry about impressions. Worry about investments. Write this down. Impressions impress temporarily. Investments invest in you eternally. So what investments are you making? I got four suggestions from investments. These are, there's no place to write it down in your notes, so just if you want to write them down, that's good, somewhere. I thought about, number one, right, right now, what you're doing now, absorbing God's word into your soul is one of the most important investments, probably the most important investment you can make in your life. Because the word of God brings life and flourishing. What does the first chapter of the Bible teach us? Everything that God creates, he creates with his word. And God spoke, let there be light, and there was light. And God spoke, let there be earth, and there was earth. And God spoke. When God speaks, life comes forward. You get into church, why? Because you're doing something good to earn brownie points in heaven? No, you come to church to get God's word spoken into your spirit so that life comes out. The word of the Lord. It's a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, the Bible says, that when you walk in God's word, it brings illumination to dark places, and you understand what is best from what is good. Your life flourishes through the word of God. Number two, education. I thought, well, <coughs> excuse me. Education is one of those things where it's pain now, pleasure later. But scorning education for pleasure now will lead to pain later. The in other words, the nerd that you're making fun of today might be the boss you hate tomorrow. <laughs> you got to get education. The Bible says this in Proverbs 23, get, uh, buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom, get discipline, get understanding. These are good things for you. Number three, real life human interaction is a long-term investment. And by that I mean to have a friend where there's no digital element between you. Put the screen down and reach out and touch someone. Talk to them face to face. Go to lunch. Develop relationships. Have yourself a good friend or friends. This is long-term investment in who you're becoming. And number four, this is you know, for the married people, but I thought about this, and it's not also, it's also for the single people. Marriage and family is a long-term investment. I wish you would write that down and underline it and start because we don't get this today in the Insta generation. Marriage and family is a long-term investment. Think about an investment. If you buy stocks, you understand. If you buy a stock, 
you understand that you don't freak out when the stock goes down. Because stocks do that. They go up, they go down. Up, down, up, 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 down, 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 down. Up, down, up, 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 down, 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 down. There are heights and there are dips. And only a dip sells in a dip. Are you, are you following me here? <laughs> Think about that concerning your marriage. Your marriage is a lifelong investment. That means that there are going to be days when it goes up, 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 up. And there are days when it's going to go down, 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 down. There are going to be days when you're like, my husband's the best. And there are going to be days when you're like, my husband is Satan. <laughs> Don't sell in the dip. Some of you came to church today in a marriage. You're in the dip. And you're thinking, I can't stand this. And you're throwing around the D word like it's candy. D word. D word's coming out like it's candy. I'm going to move on from you. I'm going to find somebody who really respects me. And I'm going to get out of this mess. You're just in a dip. Don't sell it. Think about all the work you've put into it. Think about all the work you put into it up to this point. Do you really want to just sell it now? My wife and I have this conversation. If one of us ever dies, we're both like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to marry somebody else, honestly. I asked her why. She said, because I put so much work into you. I don't want to do it again. I'm like, you know, that's true, because I think I finally got you to a reasonable place where I kind of like you now. Start all over again. It's too much work, honey. She's like, well, I'm not really at the like you stage yet, but, you know, you got potential. <laughs> Man, there's a lot of dips in marriage. There's a lot of dips in raising children. There's a lot of dips, but there's a lot of ups, and you don't sell on the dip. You look at it as an investment, and you stay the course. And some of you don't realize that just on the other side of hitting rock bottom is the skyrocketing price for all that work that you put in. Don't sell investments. Look at them long-term. Number two, long-term living leans into admonishment, not applause. And this is what Solomon's going to teach us. I, if there's a point about this message that I love, it's this one. When I read this, I thought, yeah, that's so true. Because he says in verse 5, it's better for a man to hear the what? Somebody say it the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And then he gives us a little illustration. He says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools, it's also vanity. Thorns in the ancient world were kindling. In other words, you started a fire with thorns and they crackled. They make a large crackling sound. If you read this verse in the, in the Hebrew, it's filled with K's to be poetically symbolic of what it's talking about. The crackling of the thorns, right? But kindling flashes out quickly, and he says that's what applause is. Now, we are in the applause-addicted generation as well because we're always about the likes and the follows and the comments and all that stuff. And, you know, it's, we think it's so great when people like something, but you know what they're doing? They're liking and then they're scrolling. And it's true in real life. Here's the fact. Whoever is celebrating you today could be cursing you tomorrow. you got to realize this. If, if this has not happened to you, it's because you're 12 years old and you haven't lived long enough. Mm. I have had, and Cheryl and I, we have had people come up to us and say, oh, you are the best ever. We love you. We will never leave you. And just a year later, they said, sayonara, losers. <laughs> time and time and time again. Whoever is applauding you now could be cursing you tomorrow. So what are you trying to tell me, Pastor? I'm trying to tell you, don't live for it. Yeah. I'm trying to tell you, get yourself, get that appetite out of your mouth and get yourself a taste for something you don't want. Rebuke. Admonishment. Get yourself wise people, he's saying in this passage, get yourself wise people who will say things to you that you don't want to hear. 
Who do you have in your life that will tell you stuff you don't want to hear? That'll tell you the truth because they love you. The proverb says, an enemy multiplies kisses, but the wounds of a friend bring life. There are people that are all about... And, and just now they're going to give you the kiss off. <laughs> Watch out for this. It's not long-term living. He says in verse 21, don't take everything to heart that people say about you. Some of you need to memorize this verse. They said that about me. So what? They said that I wasn't smart. So what? Maybe they're not smart. Or maybe you are smart, not smart. Maybe you need to get smart. Don't take everything to heart that people say to you. And then he says this, lest you hear your servant cursing you. I love that. He's like, sometimes even the people on your payroll are going to curse you. You could be paying people, and they're cursing you. And then he says, and by the way, if you really think about it, you've cursed many other people yourself. So chillax about what people are saying. Where did Solomon get this? He got this from his father, David, who said in Psalm 141.5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil from my head. And then he's almost like, I hope my head doesn't refuse it. In other words, I hope I don't get so big-headed that I can't receive someone striking it upside. <laughs> who do you got? Proverbs 17.10, Solomon says, A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs 12.1, verse, verse 1 says this, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but, whoever, but he who hates reproof is, say the word, stupid. In this generation in which we get to choose our news, you know what? Fox News and CNN are doing to us every night? You know what they're doing, you, you news junkies? Because I'm one of them. You know what they're doing? They're training you to only listen to people who agree with you. Do you know how unhealthy that is? That's what generation we have today? The generation of self-definition. The generation of this is my identity, born this way, generation, this is who I am, and it is unchangeable and fixed in the heavens. Unless I determine that it has changed. And woe to you if you disagree with me. This is the generation that gets to disregard biology for feelings. I'm actually a woman. I'm actually a man. Well, how do you know? Think about it. People say, I'm, I'm a woman, but they're really a man. How do you know what it's like to be a woman? And doesn't that just totally disrespect what women are for a man? to think he knows what it's like to be you? I could go on and on about this all day. But it's just the insanity of our age of self-definition. And listen, here's the thing. Here's the real trap about it. And woe to the person who dares challenge me on it. You're hateful. You're a bigot. So we are cultivating and they're teaching kids in school about this. We are cultivating an entire generation to never listen to anybody. And then we wonder why they're depressed and want to shoot themselves. Because sometimes somebody has to come alongside you and whack you upside the head. And say, are you kidding me? Stop being a fool. We are in the microaggression age. Microaggressions. Oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> the name itself is so insane. This is what's happening in college campuses when kids go to classes and the teacher says something that they get bothered by. They got to go to a room with puppies and coloring books. <laughs> and really what I think it is is that, here's what I really think it is, that universities have dropped their admission standards so low for the almighty dollar that they're letting kids in who never should have gone. Right. College is not everything. And someday, some of these people with gender studies degrees are going to be paying plumbers exorbitant amount of money to come and fix their toilet because they're morons. <laughs> this kind of preaching isn't for anybody. Uh, everybody. 
but it's good preaching. You, you, you got to learn. You know what a microaggression is? Do you know what it is? I'll tell you. I got a definition. I wrote it down just so I would say it the same way in all three services. Here's my definition of a microaggression. Small things that would never bother a grown-up. Oh, you don't like me? Okay. I'm a grown-up. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I look at you. I, I've searched your Facebook feed, and I saw what you posted, and I think, I kind of want you to not like me, to be honest with you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad that your kind of person thinks that I'm a moron. Thank you so much. I'm moving on. you got to learn how to have stability in who God is is making you to be and who you are becoming long-term instead of what people say about you today. Amen. Number three, long-term living looks forward with patience instead of backward with regret and resentment. Forward with patience. Pastor, I got so many things that I just need to fix. Okay, patience, my friend. God's not done with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He's with you to the very end of the age. Faithful is he who began a good work in you to bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God's got a long-term view of you. How many people, I wonder, here came to church today, last night you seriously blew it. This past week you really blew it. And you came to church today thinking, I guess I lost my salvation. I guess God's done with me today. I guess, no, 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 the Bible says his mercies are new every morning. He knows you're going to blow it. That's why he gets new mercies ready for you while you're sleeping, while you're dreaming, while you're sleeping and resting. God's going to work at the nighttime season saying, I got to get new mercies ready for Sarah. I got to get new mercies ready for Joey. I got to get mercies ready because I know they feel like they're worthless today. And if I don't show them the sunshine today, they're going to feel like they're going to live in perpetual darkness. But the sun always rises. To remind you he's not done with you. Just one bad day is not going to wreck your life. One bad month, one bad year. One bad decade. See, the scripture says here in Psalms, in, in Ecclesiastes 7, 7, oppression drives the wise to madness. A bride corrupts the heart. And what he's talking about here is shortcuts. That short circuit. Your long-term reality. He says better is the end than the beginning. Patience is better than pride. And then Peace is better than anger. These short, watch out for the shortcuts of life. Oppression, cheating in the Hebrew, cheating, bribes, anger, pride, shortcuts. They'll destroy you. God is big. Write this down. God is big on small and slow beginnings. I've learned this my, own, my whole life. He takes 75 years before he calls Abram into the promised land. He takes 80 years before he calls Moses to deliver the Israelites. He has poor David running around on the backside of the desert, dodging Saul's spears and Saul's army, chasing him down, trying to kill him for 13 years before he gave him the throne. He put his own son on the backside of a horrible town in the middle of the Middle East named Nazareth. He had him live there for 30 years before he ever had him speak out publicly. God is big on slow and small beginnings because in those slow and small beginnings, you are being formed for long-term successes. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Do not despise the day of small beginnings, because the Lord rejoices to see things get started. I can't tell you how many times that verse got me through the first five years of this church. Struggling through, preaching to 20 people, sometimes 12 people, sometimes 6 people. Preaching on a Wednesday night to 6 people. Let me tell you something. You need faith. Is this church ever going to grow? Is this church ever going to be something? God loves small beginnings, and so should you. Maybe you got three credits down in your college, college career. Three credits. You, need, you don't need to say, oh, I only got three credits. You say, Thank God I got three credits. I got something started. I got only, I'm only two years into marriage. We're already miserable. Thank God you got two years of misery over with. <laughs> only 60 more to go. Come on, somebody. <laughs> And then he says in verse 10, he says, don't say, why were the former days better than these? It's not wisdom. Notice that he does not deny that maybe the former days were better. Maybe they were, but don't ask. Because maybe you, you 
you were weaker back then, you didn't even know it. So because you were weaker back then, God didn't put you through tough stuff. Now you're in tough things because he knows you're stronger. You can take it now. And, and yesterday, it would have destroyed you. Warren Wiersbe says, the good old days are often the combination of two things, a bad memory and a good imagination. Number four, long-term living acknowledges that God is in control today. He's in control today. Because uh, our, our, our teacher in this passage, Ecclesiastes 7.13, he's going to say this. Consider the work of God. You can't make crooked what he made straight. You can't make straight what he made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And also in the day of adversity, consider God made one as well as the other. Some of us think that when we have a good day, that's when God is really close to us. And when we have a bad day, that's when God is the furthest from us. But the scriptures actually say the opposite. He's near the brokenhearted. Mm. Some of you are brokenhearted today and you think God's given up on you. No, 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 he's right there. And if you just take time to pause and listen, you'll hear him. Every day, God's in control. Five, long-term living finds right standing from the righteous one. Now, this is the gospel portion of the message. Right standing we're going to talk about what that means with the righteous one. So Solomon kind of gets obsessed with this phrase righteousness uh, in the end of Ecclesiastes 7. And he says in verse 15, he says, In my vain life I have seen everything. He says, Sometimes I've seen a righteous man perish, look, in his righteousness. And then sometimes I've seen a wicked man who actually lives long, prolongs his life doing evil. How many of you have seen that? Then in verse 16, this is his resolve. I love it. Be not overly righteous. (laughs) Some of you are like, I have been looking for that verse my entire life. I got that one down. And then he says, don't make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? But what, what Sol- it looks like he's saying, don't try to serve God too much. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, be not overly righteous. And the righteousness, all the commentators that I read said the same thing about this passage. The righteousness that he's talking about, it's a theological term. We, we theologians, pastors, and some of you understand this term. It's called works righteousness. Works righteousness. In other words, based on my works, I am righteous. You or I would call it self-righteousness. There is a righteousness that, believe it or not, there is a righteousness. Listen to this very carefully. Please, please, please lean in here. I know I've gone a long time. I'm almost done. But there is a righteousness that can actually keep you from God because you think you're better than you really are and you don't turn to God. America's favorite religion is not Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. America's favorite religion is this. I am a good person. That's a religion. Because when you say, well, why are you getting to heaven? Because I'm a good person. Well, based on what? Based on me. Well, that's very convenient. <laughs> Let's talk to your mother about that. Here's what Solomon says. Death knell. Death knell to the I am a good person religion. Here it is. 720. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Look at what righteousness is. It's never sinning. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is right standing with God. That's what it is. It's a judicial term. (coughs) It's a term of determination. That's what it is. That when God looks at your life, he says, you're good. You're good with me. And listen, we all want to be good with somebody. We're all in the eternal quest for righteousness. I'll explain very quickly. 
The reason why we put makeup on and our best clothes on before we get out of the house because we want to look good in the eyes of others. The reason why we fudge on our resume and lie in interviews is because we want to look good in the eyes of the employer. The reason why we cheat in exams and we try to bribe our ways to the because we look good in the eyes of our peers or our educators. The whole of human life is this quest to be good in the eyes of those whose opinions we have set up to really matter. And here's the bad problem. There's only one opinion that matters. And that's God's. And unless you're perfect, you're not good. So, so what do I do? I got good news. The true son of Solomon, the great ancestor of Solomon, the great descendant of Solomon, the son of David, the son of Solomon, his name was Jesus. And he was good. He was perfect. He never sinned. He was morally blameless and faultless. And we took that perfect man and we put him on a cross. Now listen to this because it's all going to come full circle to what Solomon just said. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, the righteous man perished in his righteousness so that the evil man we could live long in spite of our evil. That's the gospel, my friend. No one's getting to heaven based on what they do. Everyone who's getting to heaven is getting to, based, getting to heaven based on what Jesus did for them. And when you stand before God, you're either going to give him your resume or you're going to say, I got nothing to offer you, Lord. But Jesus, your son, said if I put my faith in him, I can come on in. And Jesus is going to stand up next to you and say, that's right. He's my brother. He's my sister. Let him come on in to the joy of eternal life with us. He's in the family and no one's ever going to take him out. That's the hope that I have. That's the hope God wants you to have. And 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption.